Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I am a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. Uh, the aim of these signposts is to try and help us to connect uh, our lives today with the text of the Bible. Revelation chapter 11, reading from the New Living Translation. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshippers, but do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for forty-two months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky, so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. When they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit will declare war against them, and he will conquer them and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, the city where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days all peoples, tribes, languages and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. But after three and a half days God breathed life into them and they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called up to the two prophets, Come up here! And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. Seven thousand people died in that earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign for ever and ever. The twenty-four elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped him. And they said, We give thanks to you, Lord God the Almighty, the one who is and who always was. For now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants the prophets as well as your holy people. And all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest, it is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then in heaven the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. A few weeks have passed since our previous signpost, so I just want to begin today with a short reminder of how we left things in Revelation 10. 
Uh, we noted there that there's a, a pattern that's set by the opening of the seventh seals with an interlude between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. And in exactly the same way, Revelation chapter 10 verse 1 all the way through to chapter 11 verse 14 forms uh, an interlude as well between the blowing of the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Uh, so the first thing to, to note uh, about chapter 11 is that it's part of that larger, larger scene, that larger narrative, and so we need to understand it in light of that bigger uh, scene. In chapter 10, the interlude includes a message of seven thunders, the content of which, for reasons never specified, John is forbidden to reveal. He's then given a scroll with writing on it, in which he's told to eat. He's also warned that the scroll will be sweet to the, in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And it was that scene that formed the focus of our last signpost. We noted that the role of the preacher is indeed a bittersweet one. On the one hand, there is a sweet joy in hearing and receiving uh, and, uh, and then sharing a word from God. But on the other hand, that word must first pierce the soul of the preacher. Uh, for above all else, the preacher must come to embody the word that they preach. Uh, furthermore, there is a pain in preaching a message from God to a people who refuse to listen to it. Uh, that is, they refuse to allow that word to pierce them and to bring about change in their lives. So it's not surprising that the, the Bible kind of uh, dissuades, tries to dissuade people from being uh, too quick to become teachers of the word of God. Chapter 11 has been described as the most difficult to interpret, with a lot of attention being focused on the identity of the two witnesses and uh, there's been a lot of, uh, of different suggestions about that. However, the difficulties of interpreting this passage are exactly the same as the difficulties that we encounter throughout Revelation. There's a lot in the passage that is symbolic and therefore open to a wide range of interpretation. Much of it is based on passages from the First Testament, which sadly many Christians today are less familiar with. Uh, and of course, there's a tendency when reading Revelation to get bogged down in the detail and miss the bigger picture. So with that in mind, one of my tasks today is to try and make sense of that symbolism in the passage without getting bogged down in the detail and to remain focused on the big picture, the core message that Revelation is telling us in a variety of ways, namely that things uh, around us are not as they appear to be and that there is more going on around us than we can perceive with our unaided senses. <coughs> Excuse me. Daryl Johnson has suggested that the first interlude uh, in the seal judgment seeks to answer the question, who can stand? And we saw that the only people who can stand the judgment of God are those who are sealed with the seal of God. And that phrase, the seal of God, takes us back to Ephesians 1, where the Christians there are described as having been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's probably the same meaning here in Revelation. Johnson also suggests that in a similar way, the interludes uh, of chapters 10 and 11 uh, seek to answer the question, what are those who are sealed to be and to do in the crunch where judgment is being worked out on the stage of history? I think that question provides a helpful lens for us uh, through which to view this passage. 
Uh, and so uh, in order to answer that question, we're going to have to wander through some of the symbolism of the passage and then reflect on its implications. In chapter 10, John was given a scroll to eat, but here in chapter 11, he is given a measuring stick and told to measure the temple of God and the altar and to count the number of worshippers. It's very unlikely that John was being asked to measure the actual temple in Jerusalem, as by this time it was gone, having been destroyed by Titus in 70 AD. Nor is it likely that he's being asked to measure an actual temple uh, in heaven, in the new uh, Jerusalem, uh, for uh, in chapter 21 and verse 22, when he has a, a vision of, of the new Jerusalem, he says that he saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. And so the whole city is, is pictured as a sort of temple because the presence of God dwells there in his glory. Furthermore, the New Testament also pictures the people of God as God's temple. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 19, the Apostle Paul writes, Don't you realise that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Body is, of course, one of Paul's favourite metaphors to describe the church. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians 6 and 16, he also writes, For we are a temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, in 1 Peter 2 and 5, the apostle confirms this uh, when he says that the church are, is being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And so, as J.K. Beale notes, the focus is now on the whole covenant community dwelling in a spiritual temple in which God's presence dwells. The altar refers to the way God's people now worshiping in community, in uh, worship in the community, and in line with chapter six and verses nine to ten, the altar connotes the sacrificial calling, which uh, entails uh, the suffering for faithful witness. In fact, the Greek word here for altar can be translated as the place of sacrifice. Beale goes on to say that if the temple signifies the church dwelling in the midst of Christ and God's presence, the outer court must therefore represent the church and its exposure and vulnerability to the world system in which it lives. We've already noted that the judgments of God are being worked out in history. The kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of the world and that produces conflict, especially when and where these kingdoms collide. And so the scene has been set up here that, that uh, John is, is getting a, a vision of the church, the temple, and what he says about the temple represents uh, the church. And the introduction of the two witnesses in verse 3 is sudden but significant. Uh, and in fact, it occupies the rest of this section. And so a lot of ink has been spilled trying to determine the exact identity of these two witnesses, resulting in a wide variety of interpretations. Uh, Moses and Elijah are often mentioned in connection with them. However, in order to understand who these witnesses are, we need to think about what we've just, just been looking at in terms of the temple being the church and to pull a few strands together from the First Testament, for this whole section alludes to prophecies from Israel's past history. 
although there are allusions in it from Daniel and Ezekiel, John's mainly borrowing here from Zechariah 4, in which the prophet has a vision of lampstands with two olive trees on either side, who are given, and uh, he's given the famous word, they're given the famous word, uh, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Here in Revelation, John also refers to these witnesses as olive trees and lampstands. And in Revelation 1 and 2, the term lampstands has already been used to refer to the churches to whom Revelation is addressed and who are in turn representative of all churches everywhere throughout time. In Joel 2, the prophet announces that the full community of God's people, that is the church, young and old men and women, would receive the gift of prophecy, that is, they would prophetically speak on behalf of God. The Apostle Peter's speech following Pentecost in Acts 2 confirms that they believed that this had begun to be fulfilled among them. John also tells us later that the beast will go to war against these two witnesses and this seems to be an allusion to Daniel 7 and 21 that pictures the entire covenant community being attacked and in our language the church. And John tells us here that the whole world will witness their apparent defeat which would be difficult if two specific individuals were in mind. It's also significant, I think, that the witnesses prophesy for three and a half years, which is the same time that the holy city, which represents the church, is also trampled underfoot. The 42 months is probably a symbolic number intending to draw the reader's attention to the Exodus and the people of God who, according to Numbers 33, had 42 encampments in their sojourn in the wilderness. And in those encampments, the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. So with all of this in mind, it's unlikely that the two witnesses uh, are two individuals and pulling all these different strands together, the consensus in evangelical scholarship today is neatly summarised by, by Beale when he writes that the two witnesses mentioned here who prophesy are not individuals, but rather represent the corporate church in its capacity as faithful prophetic witness to Christ. Or to put it another way, these two witnesses are the church uh, in, uh, working uh, in uh, harmony with the Holy Spirit. This is a picture of the church bearing faithful witness to an unbelieving world in the power of the Holy Spirit. So why not just say that? Why speak of two witnesses? Again, this is a symbolic phrase that resonates powerfully amongst the people of God. The First Testament required two witnesses to establish the truthfulness of any offence against the law, a principle endorsed by Jesus in Matthew 18 and 16. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out in groups of two to proclaim the message of the kingdom. In groups of two, they would bear witness as to a town's reception or rejection of their message. The Apostle Paul also endorses this principle in 2 Corinthians 13 and 1 and 1 Timothy 5 and 19. It's also interesting, I think, that in Luke 24 and 4, two angels are sent to testify to the truth of the resurrection. And in Acts 1, it's again two angels who appear in order to affirm the truth that Jesus would return. Uh, 
in terms of uh, Revelation, it's striking uh, that the seven churches to whom the letter is addressed, only two were not branded as unfaithful by Jesus. And in the midst of compromise with the world, idolatry and fickle allegiance to Jesus, these two churches stood out as faithful witnesses prophetically bearing testimony about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and at great cost. The prophetic witness or testimony of the church is often rejected and it often leads to persecution and suffering. In fact, John tells us that the two witnesses themselves are killed because of their testimony. But that's not the end because God breathes life back into them. In other words, as one scholar puts it, John is saying that the testimony of the witnesses is not in vain. Despite widespread impenitence in the face of punitive, the punitive judgments of God, their witness in life and death is effective, for through it an innumerable company responded to God by revering his name and paying homage. Here is the classic illustration of the familiar adage, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. John says that the response of the, is that of the people is that they gave glory to God. And as Jeremiah 13 and 16 suggests, this is probably a reference to confession of sin and repentance. So pulling all of these threads together, we can say that the answer to the question posed by this interlude, who, uh, what, what are those who are sealed to be and do in the crunch where the judgment of God is being worked out on the stage of history, is simply this. In the power of the Holy Spirit, they are to faithfully bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, prophetically living out and speaking the word of God uh, to an unbelieving world. It's perhaps an opportune moment to remind ourselves of the warning to the other churches in Asia who were not faithfully bearing witness to Jesus in the world that their lampstands would be removed unless they repented. To say that the church today has much to repent of would be a gross understatement. Our social setting may be in many ways vastly different from that of the churches in Revelation. However, the same spirit of compromise, of accommodation to the world and its values, at times even of open idolatry, is widespread in churches of all denominations today. There's no point in denying it. Revelation in general, and perhaps this passage in particular, reminds us that there is no middle ground, there is no grey area. We are either bearing faithful witness to Jesus Christ or we are not. It's also very clear from Revelation, indeed the whole of Scripture, that such faithful prophetic witness about Jesus is declared not merely in words, but must be embodied in lives that reflect the fact that we are sealed with the seal of God, that our allegiance is to Jesus as our Saviour and King, and that with our last breath in the face of whatever trials may yet come, we will say, Jesus is Lord, and that there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved and that that is the truth that we live by and will die for. 
with all of that in mind, Beale is right when he says that Revelation 11 verses 1 to 13 shows that the church is sealed for bearing an enduring and loyal witness to the gospel, which begins to lay a basis for the final judgment of those rejecting their testimony. What the rest of the chapter goes on to remind us of is that there is a final judgment and with the blowing of the seventh, trump, tr seventh trumpet, that judgment begins to be enacted. God is patient. He does not want any to perish. But when people consistently refuse to accept his offer of mercy, they bring judgment upon themselves. And the Apostle Peter puts it quite starkly. He writes, For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? Whether we acknowledge it or not, our lives are bearing witness to something. They're bearing witness to what we truly believe in and live for. Our lives tell a story. So here's the question. What story is your life telling? Thanks for listening today. May God bless you in the week ahead.